In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Yanis Tsoulis, Sufi lineage holder, psychotherapist, and author of Sufism and the Way of Blame. Dr. Tsoulis recounts his upbringing in Manhattan, New York, and how a childhood vision of Jesus Christ changed his life forever. Dr. Tsoulis recalls several profound mystical experiences and traces his life of travel and study with gurus and sheikhs, including his time at the Esalen Institute, close studies with Tibetan Lama Kenchen Palden Sherab, experiments in psychedelic-assisted therapy, travel to India, personal time with Osho, and more. Dr. Tsoulis also critiques New Age presentations of Sufism, including modern interpretations of Rumi, early 20th century ideas of the Sarma Brotherhood, and considers the case of Idris Shah and the collusion between teachers and disciples to create exaggerated origin myths. So without further ado, Dr. Yanis Tsoulis. Dr. Yanis Tsoulis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you today, and I've been enjoying very much your 2012 publication, Sufism and the Way of Blame, Hidden Sources of a Sacred Psychology. It's very fascinating indeed, and we're going to get into exactly what you mean by Sufism and exactly what you mean by the Way of Blame in our discussion today. But first of all, I wonder if we might start with a little bit of biography. Could you say something about the context of your upbringing? I understand that you were in your youth nominally a Christian and were in fact drawn to go deeper into that, becoming familiar with the Christian mystics and so on, and then going on many other other roads before eventually diving deeply into Sufism. So perhaps we could start at the very beginning. What was the context of your upbringing? Well, I grew up in uh, Upper West Side Manhattan for the most part. My parents were immigrants twice over, uh, as children uh, up to the age of 10, they had grown up in what was then Ottoman Turkey. My father was born in Istanbul, my mother in Izmir, then known by the Greeks as Smyrna. So they were part of what the Turks called the Rum community, meaning the Greek community in Ottoman Turkey. So we have roots that go all the way back to Turkey, even though both of my parents are nominally Greek, and were Greek Orthodox in upbringing. So they emigrated to the United States, after uh, my father after World War II, my mother slightly before. And I was raised in, in a literary Greek family. Both my parents were highly educated, cosmopolitan, secularists for the most part. And uh, I grew up largely among Jewish people in a Jewish neighborhood, an upper, upper middle class Jewish neighborhood. Okay, having said that, uh, my parents weren't particularly keen on going to church, but I suddenly became inspired at uh, around eight years old through a vision that I had of Jesus Christ to begin to attend some kind of church. And I went to the Episcopalian church because that was very convenient. It was in, in the neighborhood. Uh, so I spent many, not many, but a, quite a few years as a child in the Episcopalian church became very close to the priest and became an acolyte, was fervent believer in, in Christ, and uh, thought that uh, by the time I was 13, it was shortly before I was 13 of becoming a priest. That changed abruptly when I realized at that early age that God was everywhere. He couldn't be contained in any edifice or any uh, particular ideology. And so I became a lover of nature. 
um, and began reading at an early age, at 13 years old, uh, The Dharma Bums, Jack Kerouac's famous novel, and became greatly inspired by the vision I, I saw of a bohemian approach to spirituality. So off I went from that. By the time I was 17, um, I had read a great deal of uh, Alan Watts, later Krishnamurti. Then I, I became very attracted to Advaita, and off I went for the next uh, several years. From the age I was 21, um, I had encountered through a teacher of mine, Idris Shah's recently published book, The Sufis, uh, and was intrigued by that because it felt very familiar to me. Um, nevertheless, I couldn't find any Sufis in New York City. And so uh, I found that which was closest uh, in the form of Advaita and yogic practice. And I went off for the next seven years and practiced uh, Advaita and uh, yoga, meditative yoga, not just Hatha yoga. Uh, this led me by the time I was what, in my mid twenties to uh, make the uh, obligatory journey to the East, to India. And the story is very long, so I'm going to try to truncate it. But let's say I had a Hindu period that lasted several years, became disillusioned with the mass guru phenomenon uh, and left it and vowed not to seek that kind of guru in the future. I was also, at, by that point, training as a psychologist and psychotherapist. I was on an ac academic track simultaneously. Um, working for a place called the Eslan Institute, which was a hotbed of East-West psychology at that time. And so all of that was part of the context of what developed me. Um, by 1978, I decided to trace my family's roots by going to Turkey for the first time. And I had by then also an interest, at least theoretical interest in Sufism had met some people who were involved with it, got introductions to two Sufi teachers in Istanbul, one, uh, one who was the sheikh of the Jarahi order, a particular order of Sufism, and the other to an enigmatic character who had influenced J.G. Bennett, which is, uh, the, who is uh, Hassan Shushid. Um, very impactful meeting with him. He invited me to work with him as a murid or a student, but I decided that his, his method was a bit too, uh, how shall I put it, too ascetic. And on the other hand, that I didn't have enough grounding in classical or traditional Sufism. So came back to the States. By that point, I was living in San Francisco uh, and waited a while until uh, through a number of synchronistic events, I met my first Sufi Sheikh who was Dr. Javad Nurbaksh. So I, in 1979, I formally, as they say, took hand and became an active uh, murid of Javad Nurbaksh for two years. After that period, or during that period, I should say, I met uh, another Sufi who was a professor of international relations, who was quite secular in his appearance who was well adapted to the United States, 
and uh, with whom I felt an uh, immediate rapport. So I left my two years with the Nematolahia and migrated over to the, uh, what shall I say, the directorship of Sheikh Abdulaziz Said, who was in touch with a circle of Sufis in Damascus, Syria, he being Syrian. Um, I worked with him eight years closely. Well, I shouldn't say closely, we were at a distance. He was in Washington, I was in San Francisco, but there was a close rapport that I felt with him. We worked largely on the telephone, but at times he would visit San Francisco and I would meet with him. After this eight year period of time, um, I, take, I took a sabbatical, we could call it from Sufism, uh, after an eight year long period of tutelage. And uh, I met an extraordinary Tibetan Lama with whom we, I felt and he felt an immediate rapport. And so I went off for two years and practiced intensely under this particular Lama Kanchen Paldan Sherab, who was uh, a uh, highly educated Nyingmapa and uh, Zongchenpa Lama. And he introduced me to the higher tantras of Vajrayana, which I practiced uh, in a dedicated way for two years. At the end of that two-year period, I felt, uh, and more than felt, I, was, I felt I recalled to Sufism again. And some people who I knew came back to me and, and felt that I should revisit Sufi circles, which I did, but now as someone who was no longer only associated with Sufism, had a background in Hindu practices, had just undergone a two, very intense relationship with the Tibetan Lama. So I was open. I went back. I was drawn back into Sufism, announced to my Lama that I was going back to that tradition. And uh, off I went for the next 40, 30 years. So you see, I'm, I'm trying to keep the details minimal because it's a little too complex. But by 91, 1991, I had become initiated into the Kadri Rifai Taraka. It's a main, it's Derga or main headquarters in Istanbul. I went to Istanbul in 91. Uh, and when I arrived, I was not only initiated into the Kadri Rifai, but requested to act as a Khalifa or representative of the Qadri Rifai because I'd already had some background in Sufism. So I took on that role, and shortly after that, I was appointed to be a sheikh, a sheikh of that particular order, a combination of two of the oldest orders in Sufism, the Qadriya and Rifaiya. So I took on the mantle, let's say, of more orthodox, uh, tariqa-oriented practice and teaching, and sat on that post for approximately three years, at which point, I realized that the Tariqa mode or model of transmitting Sufism in the West, to my mind, didn't work adequately and threw me into a somewhat of, somewhat of a spiritual crisis. Um, by 1995, I met a Melami or Malami, depending on your uh, your. Uh, Pronunciation. The pronunciation differs. Melami in Turkish, Malami in 
Arabic, Amalami Murshid, with whom I felt a very instantaneous and deep rapport. And he encouraged me uh, to join, join hands with him. Um, I resigned from my post as uh, an official sheikh, which I was already in the process of doing because I no longer felt that my own spiritual journey was complete and that I had no right to teach other people without completing that journey. So I had already considered getting off the post, resigning my position as sheikh. He, he confirmed that, and off I went for the next 23 years with him. Any questions about any of that? Of course. It's a fascinating story. You said that you had your early Christian fervor was begun with a vision of Jesus. Yes. Could you say something about that? Yes. Um, as I said, my parents were secular. They didn't attend, attend church. They didn't foist on me any particular religion. And yet, uh, as a child, very early on, I went and saw, this is going to sound funny, a grade B movie called The Robe. This is back in the early 50s. And uh, I was, what, about um, seven, six years old. And uh, during this film at the crucifixion scene, I started weeping uncontrollably. And my mother had to take me out of the theater. I was bawling. Um, and in my childlike way, I was impressed by, by the figure of, uh, of a supremely human gentle, loving human being, I should say, who had sacrificed himself to the rest of humanity. Yeah, and I felt profoundly sad that such a being would be crucified. I felt greatly moved by his self-sacrifice. And just, uh, Christian belief was born in me in that way. My parents didn't go to church, but I had a babysitter who did. And uh, by the time I was eight years old, I asked my parents permission to go to church. They, being quite open, said, yes, as long as you're not indoctrinated. Uh, the Episcopalian, uh, or I, I should say, yes, the high Episcopalian church was very welcoming, very open, not particularly dogmatic. And so all of that checked the boxes. And uh, off I went. Hmm? But I never accepted uh, Jesus Christ as God. I accepted Jesus Christ as, as a guiding friend, I should say. Um, he appeared to me in a vision by the time I was 10 years old, a, a lucid vision. Um, I don't think I'll go into all, all of the details of that, but in visionary form, he, he appeared to me and uh, attempted to speak to speak to me, and yet I couldn't hear what he was saying. His lips were moving, his features were very clear, and he radiated a profound peace to me in that vision. One thing that, uh, or one impression that I got from him was that he was still alive in some form, and that I was to find him in the East. Now, I'm 10 years old, what do I know about the East, yeah? But that was the message, nevertheless, and it turned out to be true. That's very interesting. How do you interpret that 
vision now, looking back, what do you what do you make of that? Do you think that was really Jesus in a, should we say, some sort of non-corporeal form coming into your experience somehow? Or how, how would you interpret that vision or would you interpret that vision now from the position you're in? Um, as a psychologist and as someone who's been influenced by Jung, I take all such visions in a non-literal way. I take them to be potentially actual transmissions of some sort. So I don't disavow that there's a literal aspect, but I take them as uh, symbolic. Hmm? So neither fully real nor just allegorical. I leave open a kind of middle ground for any such vision, and I've had many. They're very impactful, they're, they're very meaningful, and I tend to focus on what the meaning is, rather than whether or not this is actually Jesus Christ who's speaking to me or any other such figure. Hmm. I would say, perhaps I'm wrong about this, that it's unusual to have even one vision like that and you've just told me that you've had many visions like that in your life yeah why do you think it is that you have had so many of these visions and perhaps a related question why is it that at least as far as i know it's quite uncommon for other people to have one never mind many of such visions well that's a good question i i, I really don't know <laughs> maybe by temperament i tend to be somewhat of a visionary I have a rich imagination. Uh, I leave it at that. The, the visions, however, are not meaningless. They're quite meaningful. And uh, to borrow a term from Jung, they're synchronistic. They tend to line up in a uh, meaningfully co coincidental way with actual events that transpire either during that time or after that time, or maybe even shortly before, before mm -hmm. they occur. Can you think of any uh, particularly poignant examples of that kind of synchronicity in terms of visions? Yes. Uh, when I was uh, still practicing with my Lama and the invitation, I'll call it an invitation, it was actually more of a pull to come back onto the Sufi path occurred, I meditated on that for quite some time. And uh, there were two sheikhs who were inviting me to join with them. One was a Naqshbandi. Viewers here may not know what that means, but they're a Central Asian order of Sufism, quite old. And the other was a Qadiri, uh, the oldest Sufi order. Both of them I came into contact with, and both of them seemed to be quite open to my actually kind of uh, enthusiastic about my joining them. And I couldn't make up my mind, okay, which way is my path, you know? And should I leave my Buddhist connection altogether? And my Buddhist connection was really quite deep and meaningful. I was almost ready to take on vows as a Nyagpa in Tibetan Buddhism, in Vajrayana Buddhism, as a Nyingmapa. I was actually preparing to make a decision about going into a three-year retreat. And suddenly, boom, 
you know, I'm back on track with Sufism. It was quite sudden. And not only that, but invited by two people to take hand initiation with them. I'd already taken hand beforehand, but uh, my sheikh, before I left him, had given me permission to withdraw that connection. So in the midst of all of this, I was praying, meditating, then praying. And suddenly I had this lucid vision of a Sufi sheikh with long garments. I could not quite see his face. I was prostrate, uh, but I could feel the hem of his garment. And he announced to me telepathically that he was Abdul Qadr Gilani, who is well known among Sufis as being one of the Qutubs in the past, remote past. He's also known as the Gauth or helper. I was very surprised. I mean, what, what's going on? You know, but I touched the hem of his garment and I felt this enormous uh, shock of power coming into my body, um, which the word that came to mind telepathically almost was kudra, which in Arabic means power, yeah? And Abdul Qadr means the servant of power. And it also came to me that this was my initiatory name. So I felt the calling to take the Qadri or the Naqshbandi path because of that. So that's one, one other example. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Uh, what happened at 13 that gave you that impression that God was everywhere? You said you had some sort of a turning point moment there. Uh, what, what was that? I had, well, I was going to camp, summer camp. And the summer camp I went to was a YMCA camp in uh, upper New York state. They had an outdoor chapel that was located right at the shore of a lake, a beautiful lake. And uh, the altar was a, a stone, a natural stone. And then there were seats around that. And on Sundays they would have outdoor services. Uh, as a kid, I was often bullied by other kids, and there was, and there was no exception to that when I went to summer camp. I was seen as overly sensitive kid and an easy target, and so on and so forth. I didn't like to fight. Um, the kids would uh, chase me off quite often. Sometimes they'd beat me up, uh, and I also, I, I, so I ran away from them often and sought refuge in the woods. And the, my favorite place where I felt a sense of peace was that outdoor chapel. And as I was sitting in that chapel, or, or after repeated times of sitting in that chapel, looking at nature, feeling a deep sense of quiet, it came to me that God is everywhere. He must be everywhere. So when I went back to church, I felt like, what's the use of sitting in a church? And as I said, I was introduced to Jack Kerouac, and that particular summer, I read the Dharma Bums, and that's filled, of course, with, uh, I'm sure you know it, it's filled with uh, Jack Kerouac's wanderings through nature with uh, Jaffe Schneider, <coughs> uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 
so it's all about wandering through the world with a naively Buddhist uh, approach, finding finding the spirit of nature most powerful. So I'm sure that had an influence too. Mm. There's one thing missing from this. Uh, when I read these ingredients lists here that you're telling me about, Unitive Experiences, Jack Kerouac, Alan Watts, the Esalen Institute, and the time period it was all going on, which is uh, psychedelics. So I wonder, given the time period and given, given the waters you were swimming in, was that a significant part of this period? Not of that period when I was merely 13 years old, no. Um, we're talking about the 1950s here. Ah. Uh, psychedelics did play a part in my development, but only after I was... Uh, I. Well, I went, in, I should say, I went into the military when I was 17, into the army. Uh, and uh, in 1964, and I came out in 1967. In 60 or before 64, I was around the beat scene in New York as a little teeny bopper. But after I had left the United States and come back in 67, as you can well imagine, a cultural revolution had taken place. So I walked back into, wow, what happened here? Uh, I moved into the Lower East Side. <coughs> and yes, <clears throat> I immediately began experiment, experimenting with LSD, peyote, mescaline. I'd already smoked marijuana in my teenage years, um, but that wasn't didn't have quite the power of the other psychedelics um and that's a long story too because as i got into psychedelics and as i uh, visited uh, leary's uh, league of spiritual discovery and all that um and studied uh, with uh, ralph metzner who right who helped write the tibetan book of the dead leary's version of the tibetan book of the dead all that's going on at the same time it was a tumultuous period um, I hit a, a roadblock. Uh, I had a very bad trip, and that bad trip left me in a spiritual crisis by 1968. So I stopped taking psychedelics because I felt like they 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 blew open all the doors of perception, to use Huxley's term, you know, but to such a degree that I couldn't quite absorb everything that was coming in. Um, and it left me with the feeling that uh, my ego was getting in the way of something profound that had to occur. I had to undergo an ego death, and yet I was frightened of it. I was frightened that I might go off. The, uh, I was frightened that I might go off the deep end and become psychotic and so on and so forth and be locked up somewhere. That eventually led me to to. Uh, engage in formal psychedelic therapy in Vancouver uh, in a place called Hollywood Hospital, uh, which you can read about. If anybody reads the book, uh, Storming Heaven, I think is the title of the book, A History of Psychedelics. They mentioned that particular hospital. It's the only place in North America where you could legally undergo psychedelic therapy. I went there. When, once I left New York and moved to the West Coast, I first stopped off in Vancouver, 
and I underwent an incredibly powerful um, two sessions of psychedelic therapy, uh, which triggered a kind of enlightenment experience for me. I left the hospital feeling and, and being utterly convinced that I had become enlightened. And I walked around that way for a couple of weeks, uh, feeling like, well, there's nothing left to do. I just burned out all my karma. You know, I had that Hindu model. I burned out my karma. I have nothing else to do except play in the world with this form of consciousness. And it was very blissful and very, very pleasant. And guess what? It ended. <laughs> it came, I came down and I came right back to my neurotic little self going, what happened here and where do I go from here? And where I went from here was down the West Coast to San Francisco, joined the staff of Esalen Institute and began a whole new phase in my life of becoming an active psychotherapist. You see, it's too long a story. It's not too long at all. <laughs> it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. Goodness so me. yes, psychedelics played a part in my life, but I saw the limits of using psychedelics as well. And so between the psychedelics period and Esalen, wh wh when did India happen? When did you go to India and have your, as you called, your Hindu period? Well, I should say something about the psychedelic period too. Mm. When I was still in New York, uh, and when I, while I was um, experimenting with psychedelics, I also felt the need to take up a spiritual practice. And so I found a tantric yogi who was connected in some ways with uh, a famous uh, raga vocalist named Pranav. Some of your viewers may know that name, others not. Uh, Pranav, and I won't name this particular uh, teacher of yoga for various reasons, but that teacher of yoga and, and uh, Pranav were connected and also that circle connected with Baba Ramdas, who had just come back by 1970 from his major wanderings in India. So I met uh, Ramdas briefly and I started following, well, okay, what's going on with him? You know, did what changes did he undergo being so close to Timothy Leary and that whole psychedelic circle? And, and of course, one of the great messages of Baba Ramdas is once you get the message on the phone, hang up, the phone being psychedelics. And I said, that makes sense to me. So I hung up that particular phone, wanted to include that. Mm. Going back to your original question, I, uh, I'm sorry, I blanked out. Well, actually, um, I'll, and I'll interlace another question. You said peyote, and of course, peyote, yes. West Coast, that also makes me think of Carlos Castaneda. Was he on your radar at all? Yes, he was. Um, he was on the radar of everybody at Esalen Institute because he was around. Yeah. He was highly secretive, but nevertheless, it was known that he was around. Um, I was never drawn to Castaneda, although the books were marvelous. I was particularly impressed by the journey to Iklan. Um, did I have a desire to meet with him and go off on, onto a shamanic path? No, I didn't. And you said that you went to India as well and had a what you called a Hindu period there. It seems following a guru of some kind. Um, mm -hmm. yes. When did that occur? Uh, around this time, it seems, just before Esalen or during after? 
during uh, the mm -hmm. time I was working as a staff member at Essen. Let's roll this back a bit, roll the tape back. Um, after I left my, um, my first teacher in tantric yoga in New York, I just met with him briefly over a year. Uh, I came to the West Coast. I moved to the West Coast. I settled down in San Francisco. This is about 1971. And um, as I said, I traveled first to Vancouver, where I did psychedelic therapy, then came down to San Francisco. And uh, by 1972, I got a letter from a friend in Vancouver that a guru had come there from India, who they were now um, studying with. And I became interested, okay, uh, maybe I should take a vacation, fly back to Vancouver and see who this guy is. I did, and I ended up staying nine months with him. I, in fact, living with him. And during that period, I practiced mantra yoga very intensely, both hatha and mantra yoga, and also studied the systems of classical uh, Hindu philosophy with him. So I was his servant and roommate for that period of time and practiced for the first time, practiced uh, sitting meditation during a, over a month uh, six hours, six hours a day. So very intense immersion into meditative experience at that time. Um, it ended. I felt like, okay, this has to end. I have to pursue some other approach. I had, uh, you know, loose ends in San Francisco. I had to go tie up. So we uh, bid each other adieu. I traveled back down to San Francisco and uh, still practiced every day. Uh, and by the time 1973 rolled around, I was in a, a bookstore in San Francisco, a used bookstore where I'd often go to buy books. It's called The Green Apple. And I was in the yoga Vedanta section of the bookstore, looking at some books. Was, the bookshelf was quite high. As I was looking at one book, another book fell on my head. I mean, literally, it fell on my head and flipped onto the floor open. Oh, naturally, I bent down, picked it up, and it was called The Mystic of Feeling. And I opened the page to a photograph of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Who's this guy? I never heard of him. So I started looking at what was written in this book. Oh, I'm sorry. At that time, he was called Acharya Rajneesh. Later, he became Bhagwan. Bhag Shri, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh or Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh. I forget which. And then later, of course, he becomes Osho. Um, I read about this guy, and he, he seemed to be uh, not eclectic, but synthesizing Tibetan Buddhism, Hinduism, Sufism, existential philosophy, and was like everything I was interested in. Um, I took the book home. Uh, I felt this was very interesting, but so what? I put the book on my shelf. And uh, after that, cleaning up the office at Esalen, I don't know how many months later, 
I came to a stack of flyers, which we had to go through because people would leave them off at the office advertising this event or that. I'm sorry if this is getting boring by now, but it's very long. But uh, I, for some reason, reached into the stack of flyers right, right around the middle of it and pulled out a flyer on orange paper announcing that some disciples of Rajneesh were coming to San Francisco. Okay. I went, well, this is synchronicity again. I felt moved to go and see them. Um, I went and saw them. I felt connected with them to a certain degree. And they asked me if I would do them a favor. There was a, a, a Hindu man coming from India, a disciple of Rajneesh, who needed a place to stay for a few days. Could I take him in? I did. He and I had an immediate connection. Who's an elderly man, half blind, had been a disciple of Rajneesh uh, for a long period of time. And uh, he, he initiated me. I became a sannyasi. Which meant I've got to interrupt my studies and I've got to somehow get to India because I want to meet the guru himself. But, so I did that. Right, I packed everything away. Said I'm on, <laughs> I'm on the trip again. Uh, bailed out, one way ticket to India, that sort of thing. I uh, got to. I, I don't do things in half measure. When I do them, I do them. So I jumped off. Came to Rajneesh, insisted on the first day I arrived seeing him for a private audience. I must have been quite annoying, <laughs> demanding and annoying. Uh, and lo and behold, I got that meeting. And uh, God, how much can I say about that? That's, that's, that's a chapter in itself. But the moment I met him, despite every conditioning in my mind, literally the moment I saw him, I dropped on my knees and prostrated. I felt I had found my Sadhguru. Yeah. It's a long story. I stayed with him. Uh, he, this is before the big um, hullabaloo about Osho and all this. Before Pune, before Rajneeshpuram, before all this. Excuse my French crap that occurred around him. Uh, he indicated that we had a, a very deep connection that I was an old disciple of his in a former life and I had come back and that I was welcomed back. And, you know, this had a profound effect on my, uh, on my psyche. Didn't last that long. I, I, I had an open-ended ticket to India. I traveled all over Northern India. I went to Rishikesh. Uh, and so on. Um, and I, I had another spiritual parting of the ways because I started to realize there's something off about what's happening around him. I don't know about him, but the, the things that were going on around him seemed a little bit unsavory to me. So um, I was posed with an existential choice, I should say. 
I met with him one-to-one. -one. And uh, one of the things I objected to was people walking around with a mala with his picture on it. And I said, direct, I said to him directly, why do you allow people to walk around with this picture of you? And I didn't think I'd get into this in this interview, but I might as well. He answered me, what, what does it matter to you? Throw the mala out. I said, done. <laughs> Gladly. Why do you allow them to call you Bhagwan, Lord? He said, what does it matter to you? Throw it out. I said, what about this orange robe, you know, and sannyasin? If it gets in your way, throw it out. Right? So far, so good. It sounds like a Zen story, right? Then, then I said, I, I braced myself because I said, okay, the last thing to throw out is you, Rajneesh himself, you know. And I said, what about you? And then came this, what I call metaphysical double bind. He said, you can do one of two things. You can follow the path of your intellect and ego and leave, or you can stay and surrender completely to me so that I can work through you. Go and decide. Okay. End of darshan. I went back to my crummy little hotel room and I sweated out for three days, literally and figuratively. Okay, here I'm posed with this existential decision. I may have found the Sadhguru who can enable me to achieve enlightenment in one lifetime in Rajanish. That was the original feeling, by the way. On the other hand, there are cultic aspects to this. And I feel that if I surrender my discrimination, I may lose my soul. Do you, do you take the risk of losing in this lifetime the opportunity to be enlightened and therefore free? Or do you, do you take the risk of losing your very soul? Which one? After three days of sweating it out, I decided, no. I have, even if I'm not enlightened in this lifetime, I cannot risk losing my very soul. I'm gone. And I left. Came back to the United States. Took up my... Uh, academic path, got back my job at Eslon and uh, decided to swear off all gurus at all and plunged instead into the works of Jung, into exploring Western paths of mysticism, Hermeticism, Kabbalah, the Christian Kabbalah. And continued uh, my psychotherapy studies until I became a working psychotherapist. Huh? Okay, that, that took me to up to 1978 when I went to Turkey and bang, met Hasan Shushid. And uh, 
Nurdin and uh, sorry, Muhyiddin Ozal. Muhyiddin is it? No, Muzaffar. Sheikh Muzaffar Ozal. Um, wonderful man. I was did not feel drawn to that uh, tariqah. But when I met Hassan Shushid, it was a very special meeting. And I felt like I was coming home, yeah? Well, this, this tradition is still part of me, even though I've forsworn gurus. Um, let's see if I can approach this differently. Okay, back to Nurbach. That too happened in a synchronistic way. And all right, by 79, I was on the path of Sufism. I'm curious, what did you think you were pursuing? What rather, what had convinced you that enlightenment was a thing that you could achieve or however you want to phrase that, um, that what had convinced you that that was the case? That, that was what Osho, it seems, was dangling before you with the Faustian bargain, you know, sell your soul for enlightenment, something along those lines. So what was it that you thought you were doing there? And also, um, what, and what convinced you about that uh, in general, this path of this quest for enlightenment. And also um, you're navigating quite often by this feeling of being drawn, this felt sense of resonance or being drawn to this person or that person or this book or this meeting, not always exactly knowing what you're doing until yeah. you tell the story later. Um, I'm also curious what you think that instinct is. Oh, those, these are great questions. Uh, I appreciate them. Let me wind back again. I left out a piece. When I was uh, in high school, we had left New York and gone to Florida. Just for context, I finished my last two years in Florida of high school. During this period, uh, just before I was about to graduate as a senior, I met a very interesting man, an existentialist, and we became friends and we hung out together. And again, I don't want to go into a whole volume, you know, in describing it. But on a particular night, he and I went to hang out on a beach, on the beach. And um, he was quite older than, than I was. I was, what, 17 years old. He was in his early 40s. Um, a wonderful soul. Very caring. We were sitting on the beach and, and it was very quiet. It was a brilliant night. And for some reason, he turned to me and asked me, Yanni, who are you? Who are you really? And he asked it in such a one-pointed way that the question immediately set off something in me where I, all of the obvious answers to that question fell away rapidly, one after the other. That who, who are you question just went exactly to the depths of my being. And I felt this explosive ecstasy happen. Whereupon we were looking out at the beach and starlit night and some you know, nature itself in its majesty, whereupon I felt that everything became acutely clear. Every grain of sand, every star, every ripple of wave. 
And I was at one with all of that. I was at one with it. That was the answer to the question, who are you really? And within that field of interrelatedness was this extraordinary compassion and love. What do you do with that experience when you're in high school? Okay. So uh, at that time, I, I knew having read the Dharma bums that there was this thing, Buddhism. So I decided to find if they knew about this experience and could tell me more, the Buddhists that is. And so I found a book called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones by Paul Reps. I, I, and as I read it, I recognized that they recognized what had occurred to me. It was a kind of Satori or Kensho and that I needed, very much needed to find people who could tell me more about what it is I'd, I'd experienced, okay? Was this a taste of enlightenment? Well, yes, to me it was. Um, what more could I learn? How could I return to it? Because when I came back down from it, so to speak, I was same guy. Same thing occurred with later on with psychedelics. Right? So there were these openings that in the literature pointed to, in the Zen tradition, Satori Kensho, in the Hindu tradition towards some form of moksha, yeah? Uh, samadhi and moksha, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if I'm answering that part of the question. Hmm. You you be, one begins to form an idea of what enlightenment might be. It's usually wrong, but you, you take it, you form an idea, it becomes an ideal, conceptual ideal. And if you're driven by it, if it has also an emotional component to it, a deep felt emotional component, you're driven towards arriving at that goal. And along the way, importantly, you start to deconstruct the myths around it. But we can talk about that later. Mm. Yeah. So that's now several people, several gurus of, a of, of teachers that you had quite profound connections with, not least Osho and later on the Lama, with whom you studied for two years. And also several of your Sufi teachers too. To what do you ascribe that pattern? And we talked about having lots of visions before, which is very unusual to have even one. It's, it seems quite unusual to have such a connection with a teacher and for you to have had that with many teachers and for them to have in, in many cases initiated that conversation seems yes. really unusual. Do you have a sense of what's going on there? Um, that's an awful lot of gurus to have been disciples of in past lives. Well, I don't know that I was a disciple in past lives. In fact, maybe there there's no such thing as past lives. I mean, you know, I don't go by that. Uh, are you asking the question of why I think I might have had so many teachers in this lifetime? Yeah, who said to you, ah, I, I recognize you from before, you're an old disciple, come back, come into the fold. Well, 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 well only, only Rajneesh actually said that. I see. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's exhausting. 
the 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 Lama with whom I was very close also, I met through a lucid dream. So we could go there at some point. But he indicated <laughs> that I also had some karmic connection to right. to him and to the, the path. Um, so you're right, there's more than one. Um I gee, I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's perfect. That's yeah. a perfectly legitimate response. <laughs> I don't think that makes me particularly special. I don't place a great importance on, on any of that. I think it's rather incidental to the thing in itself. Yeah. And what the thing in itself is is more interesting. The thing, so, the thing in itself the thing being is something so-called awakening, so-called mm. enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. Mm. That's more interesting. What is that? And what is it not? How you get there? Oh, yeah, I don't know. It's novelic, I suppose, you know. But is it really that important? No, I don't think so. Mm. The thing in itself is more important. Can we talk a little bit about the Lama then? And then I would like to talk about Sufism and how on earth it was you got into, uh, how on earth it was you, you became, that became your main path. Um, but perhaps we could talk about your Lama first. Um, you said his name was Panchen Palden Sherab? Yes. And you met him in a lucid dream? Yes. Uh, normally, was, one is warned about not talking about these things, right? So let me say why I would open my big mouth and talk about it in the first place. Um, well, I think that this contemporary period, this age, requires that we be more disclosing, disclosive, that we examine our experiences more openly, that we view them with a certain degree of healthy skepticism, uh, all of that. So if I go into this, I'd like to warn people that my approach is somewhat skeptical. I don't take these things literally. And yet, nevertheless, they seem to be synchronistic and meaningful. Okay. So having said all of that, as a disclaimer, uh, that particular experience or dream occurred when uh, I was, I said I took a sabbatical from my Sufi teacher. Well, that's true. But the sabbatical was not purely my choice. My teacher uh, at that time, Abdulaziz Said, who lived in Washington and with whom I communicated mostly by phone, decided on uh, for what seemed to be completely irrational reasons to kick me out of his out of his teaching. I couldn't make sense of it. I did something to piss him off, I suppose. You know? And his reaction to this little thing was exaggerated. It seemed to me at the time was greatly re- uh, exaggerated. And he decided that while I keep you in my heart, I'm using his actual words, um, it's time for you to go on your own way. Yeah. 
I was shocked. I mean, I spent eight years with him. Yeah. I'm being kicked to the curb, so to speak. <clears throat> this phone call occurred, incidentally, as I had already purchased some uh, tickets, flight tickets, to go visit him in Washington, in Washington, D.C. So he tells me, forget about it. It's useless at this point. I've got these tickets in my hand. My girlfriend and I at the time were getting ready to take a so-called vacation, four-day vacation in Washington. Um, you know, it was like this. What do I do now? Okay. Do I cash in the tickets? Do I, you know, okay. And meanwhile, I'm struggling with the shock of this. Shortly before this occurred, I have a lucid dream that I wake up with, which shockingly for me has to do with Tibetan Buddhism. Why Tibetan Buddhism? I'm on the Sudhika. I, of course, I had read some books because I'm a avid reader. I had read about Tibetan Buddhism. I'd, I'd, I'd even encountered it in India. I stayed in Dharmasala and Dalhousie. I took uh, Dharma classes there. So it wasn't entirely foreign to me. But at this period of life, I wasn't concentrating on Buddhism. <clears throat> in the dream, I'm walking in Manhattan, arm in arm with someone who's obviously a Tibetan monk. Uh, he appears to be somewhat frail. It comes to me that this is my grandfather in the dream and that I need to take him home because he's not feeling well and he's not capable of walking home alone. So I'm walking in Manhattan with him to his apartment to take him home. We get to the side of the apartment building. Suddenly that scene changes and becomes a, a high mountain plateau, cold, windy, vacant of any civilization, except for a cave which I now recognize is his apartment. I brought him to his apartment. He, uh, he walks off into the cave. I, let, I didn't say goodbye to him, but I knew that he was safe and he could walk, walk away into his cave. And at that moment, swooping in suddenly is this incredibly ugly hag of a woman with crooked teeth who starts making these seductive movements towards me, pushes her pelvis up against mine, rubs against it in a provocative way and says in so many words, you wanna have sex, Sonny? You've never had sex like this. Shoots this energy through me, this extraordinary energy. I get dizzy. She leaves and I walk into the cave where my so-called grandfather is sitting already on a stone ledge in meditation. I sit down and uh, I realize that he's teaching me chud. And he's been teaching me chud in my dreams for years.
once that recognition occurs between us, that I recognize that he's been doing this, he points to one corner of the cave where an apparition begins to emerge or, or solidify of a wrathful deity. And he says, this is your yidam. Yeah. And then he pronounces three words. I wake up. As what is this? I write down these words in, of course, in English transliteration. I have a friend at that time, or had a friend. She's passed away. Who was a, a Tibetan nun, Canadian? I called her up. Her name was Dusty. I said, Dusty, I've had this really peculiar dream. And uh, what do you think? You know, these symbols are there. And you know, what do you think about it? And she said, Well, I don't know how to interpret that dream, but let me call my Lama, who happens to live in New York, and ask him. She does, she calls me back later in the afternoon, says, oh, he says it's a very auspicious dream. If you happen to be in New York, come by and visit. New York, right? So, end of that, right? Fast forward, my sheikh kicks me out. I've got two tickets to go somewhere. Dusty tells me that there's a very special ceremony taking place in Toronto that this Lama is going to conduct one of the first times in North America, something called the Vajrakilea uh, induction or whatever. Would you like to come? Since you, I told you I have free time, this shocking thing happened. I got kicked out of my Sufi circle. I said, what the heck? Okay, let's, my girlfriend, we got this these days planned uh, off anyway as a vacation. Bada bing, bada boom change the tickets, go to Toronto. Yeah. And plus, maybe I'll get to learn more about what this extraordinary dream is about. So I walk into uh, the house where the Lamas are staying. They were brothers, these two Kempos. Kanshin Paldin is the eldest. I walked in, I was introduced, and immediately I see this guy, this, this is the guy, yeah. without a doubt. I say to him, um, can you tell me the meaning of the dream? He starts to interpret the dream. He said, well, the old, the ragged old woman was Ekajati, who's the guardian of Zodchen. My Yidam is uh, a version of Vajrakilea. I'm doing that induction this week, please come. And I said, well, I feel like you and I are really familiar. And he said, yes, indeed. I said, were you aware of that dream of teaching me should? He said, yes. What do you do? Take the guy for his opinion, his, you know, take him at face value? Yes, of course, okay. Uh, but we had an immediate report, you see. I said, okay, I, he welcomed me to take refuge with him. I was delighted, I was honored, I was humbled, 
except for one problem. Um, I've already made, or I've already dedicated myself to the Sufi path. At which point he said, no problem. I said, well, can you accept me taking refuge with you while I still remain on the Sufi path? He said, yes, no difference. Striking. Well, I took refuge with him. And for the next two years, I studied with him. Sometimes he would come and stay with me in San Francisco. I felt a very intimate connection with him. And I'm very grateful to have met somebody like him, let alone been in close proximity. That's it. What did you study with him? And did you ever find out the meaning of Ningtig track? Ah, yes. Ningtig. I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I don't know Tibetan that well. Ningtig means heart essence. Uh, in the Nyingmapa path, there are the heart essence teachings, yeah? Which he was promoting, by the way. Drak, he didn't know what to make of it. Drak means dragon. So that part he was puzzled by. But it was rather weird to me that uh, I received in Tibetan, in my dreams, at least two words that made complete sense because he is part of the Nyingtig or heart essence teachings of the Nyingmapa themselves. So maybe I'll find out where mm. the drug part was. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, very fascinating. Um, well, yes, what did you study with him? Well, it was practice, huh? Mm. Uh, he seemed uh, to, he, he thought, oh, what, how do I put this? I was expecting he might put me through Nundro practices, yeah? Because that's the normal progression for most people uh, in the Nyingmapa tradition. But uh, he, he initiated me instead into the so-called higher tantras, uh, which are composed of, um, not seen now. Well, Maha Yoga is Yidan practice. Guru Yoga, Maha Yoga, which is Guru, Yidan, and then Dakini, Anuttara Yoga. These are the three so-called higher tantras, and they, they are necessary before, in at least among the Nyingmapas, they're necessary to complete before you enter Dzogchen, which is Ati Yoga. So uh, I focused on Guru Yoga uh, and then uh, it, Yidan practice, Maha Yoga, with Vajrakilaya. Yeah, you know, uh, Nintik, as you say, means heart essence. And I was thinking Drak, Drakpo. Yes, and, I know uh, Drakpo, yeah. Yeah, and I think Drak means wrath, actually. Guru Drakpo is a wrathful manifestation, manifestation of Pabas and Baba, I think. Oh, I, I, I didn't know that. Uh, mm -hmm. Drak, I, I know, is dragon. Druk, I think, is dragon. Drak, Druk. Yeah, you, you're probably right. I'm, I've been away from that for a while. You see yeah. that? Oh, yes, I know this. Guru Drakpo, yeah. 
let's see, proclamation. Yeah, well, I guess, yes, there's um, another manifestation or rather another name for Guru Drakpo. Um, hmm. What is it? Dorje something. Drolo maybe, Dorje Drolo. Dorje Drolo, yes, I've, I've been very attracted to that. Yeah. Mm, interesting, yeah. Well, my practice is the same uh, a practice of Guru Padmasambhava. I know that. Mm. Yeah, I think it's called Yangdrag, which is a my 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 Guru, my Lama, just taught me that it was the heart essence of Vajrakilaya practice. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Goodness me, this wasn't in your book. <laughs> we were going to talk about your book, the Way of Blame. Um, no, no, it's, it, it's another book. Yeah, it's another book that I hesitate to write. Yeah, oh, you should definitely write that. That would be amazing. Um, well, let's pivot now to Sufism. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say elsewhere that you had drank the Kool-Aid of the New Age presentation of Sufism in your early 20s. That's a direct quote. Yes. And in particular, the idea of the Sarmong Brotherhood. Mm, um, yeah which you've said has appealed to your search for, uh, once again, your words, ultimate synthesis. Yes. But later you became, once again, in your words, disgusted with that presentation. Yes. So, I'm, and I think this could be an interesting track because one of the things to follow, because one of the things that you do in Sufism, the way of blame, is you, you debunk or at least investigate and criticize various different interpretations of Sufism. One of those, of course, is the is is that, that sort of New Age interpretation, that New Age presentation of Sufism that we find in people like Gurdjieff, or you've mentioned already Shah, you've mentioned already uh, Bennett, people like that. So I'm wondering if by way of following your journey from that point in your early 20s forward, we might also begin to cover some of the material, debunking material here. But what, okay. what is the Sarmung Brotherhood what 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 was that new age presentation that i think still is s somewhat popular although a lot of that sort of secret yeah. white lodge stuff is is no longer i think popular but at that time it was it was really had really captured the imagination early 20th century right yeah sure yeah well it's like the great white brotherhood in theosophy yeah right yes this idea of a a, a cosmopolitan group of mystics that hang out together somewhere in the himalayas who transcend all the rigid dogmatic religious forms. Right? Quite appealing idea um, that they exist somehow and they're, they have some effect on right, the future of the world and all of this, you know, quite inflated, these quite inflated ideas. Um, naturally as a 20 something uh, who is some eclectic, as you can tell, and who felt drawn to many traditions, not one, I was seeking, well, is there a place where all of these traditions are brought together and where they're compared, evaluated and compared, and where there's a synthesis of all of them that goes right to the essence, you know, directly to the essence of it all. Um, I, are you familiar with Fritjof Schuon's work? Only in what I've read about him in your book, which is I, quite a bit, you, you lay out quite detail. Well, he's a more sophisticated version. Perennialism is a more sophisticated version of all that. They would hate me saying that, but I will. 
Um, so I was looking for this because of my own background and my own proclivities. And um, but, but I, I believe there might be some truth to it, you know, that if I only journey far enough, that I will find this group of specialized people who may or may not accept me into their circle. Yeah. But remember, my earliest vision of Christ says, go to the East, I'm still alive. Right? Alive in what form? Yeah. I found that to be true, by the way. I, I, I when Christians asked me, why did I take up Muslim practices? I said, because Jesus told me to, you know, he guided me to the East. Um, of course, I'm being a little bit ironic when I say that. Uh, but uh, what drove me to that? Well, the, it symbolized, I think, the cosmopolitan urge, the urge uh, as we become more and more globalized, and globalization is not new. It began during, <laughs> thanks to the Silk Route, you know, but there have been various periods of greater and greater globalization, the British Empire being a great example of that. And of course, Blavatsky and those people came out of that and on and on and on. So, but the more globalized we become, the more exposed we are to varying and various currents of traditional wisdom. What do we do with it? You know, it's very hard to be parochial uh, in this day and age. So only, only follow one way. And yet it's necessary to be rooted in one way. One can't simply be eclectic, not in my experience. So Sufism for me became my home base, even though I was exposed to and greatly respect and appreciate Vajrayana Buddhism, not only Vajrayana, Zen Buddhism, Theravada, uh, the Hindu forms, Advaita, Dvaita, Vedanta. And I still read, you know, across the board. I don't limit myself only to Sufi texts. Now, what was the other part? I get lost in this sometimes. Well, I think you've set the stage there. Yeah. You know, maybe I'll read something from the, the opening of the book here. Okay, that would help. Because we're dealing with so many things so quickly that yeah. uh, I'm losing focus a little bit. Well, that's that's due to my questioning, I think. Um, uh, and incidentally, I think your question is excellent. I really appreciate oh. the questions you're raising. Thank yeah. you. You write here... Why then write another book about Sufism? And you say this interdisciplinary work begins by critically examining popular and scholarly conceptions about Sufism as a whole and critique some of them in an attempt to bring the study of Sufism up to date. Moreover, as far as I know, this is the first book to detail the relationship between Sufism and the controversial way of blame in all its historical phases up to the present day. Is that me or is that the introduction written by um, Bob Dar? That's the preface, I think, written by you in 2010. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, you, you also say, so this will put a point to my question, I think. I propose instead that Sufism is a multiplex phenomenon that grew out of a syncretic cultural matrix, one that often embraced certain forms of Muslim heterodoxy. Notwithstanding these facts, one should not ignore that Sufism lacks unifying characteristics distinguishing it from other sacred traditions. And you go on to talk about the myth-making of people like Gurdjieff and Idris Shah. And um, you, you say that the traditionalists, the um, universalists and the occultists. So maybe we could start there. What is Sufism? 
Uh, what's the thumbnail sketch, if such a thing can be done? And what isn't it um, in, in relationship to those three streams of traditionalism, universalism, and occultism that you, you lay out in the opening chapters of the book? Well, that's why I use the, the word multiplex. Sufism is not any one thing. Um, the simplest definition is offered by Anna Marie Schimmel, which is that it's the mystical dimension of Islam. Okay. Uh, there are unitar what I call uni Unitarian Universalist Sufis, um, the Inayatis, uh, who follow Hazrat Anayat Khan and Pir Balayat Khan, who present a more universal form of Sufism that um, it could be said precedes and transcends Islam. Okay, fair enough. That's one angle. There are others who insist with, with a great degree of credibility that a Sufism outside of Islam is nonsense, makes no sense at all. It is a specifically Islamic tradition. Okay, that makes sense too. Yeah. Um, there is a perennialist vision of Islam. And by the way, I'm not against uh, the perennialists. I mean, I agree with them to a certain, certain point. And I disagree with, disagree with them in, uh, in other ways. I don't disagree with Hazrat Anayat Khan. I don't disagree with Idris Shah. I don't fundamentally. I don't disagree with the perennialists. They all have different angles on the same elephant in the room, or elephant in the dark in this case. Um, so what is Sufism? I don't think you can boil it down to any one thing. But for the sake of sanity and focus, I would say that your, your, your safest bet is to accept that Sufism is the mystical tradition that comes out of Islam or the Islamicate world. Yeah? Because the influences are many. Yeah? It's not a sealed off tradition. I don't think there are any. Is that helpful? Yeah. And that's something that becomes clear in the, in the book is just how many types of Sufism there are, different lineages, you could say, different lines of, of Sufism across the, uh, the Islamic world, separated by time and also location, and also, as you, as you put it, inclination and, and sect and so on. Something that's very interesting, uh, an area that you, you, you cover, there's this interesting line from Gurdjieff to Shah and onwards. You, you detail, for example, uh, Idris Shah, his beginnings as a Sufi teacher, misrepresenting himself to, well, perhaps you can tell that story, and implying that he is a representative of this Sarmung Brotherhood to follow on the work of Gurdjieff and so on, and making quite a bit of headway um, doing that. And you, you suggest that he's exaggerating or, or lying about that, really. Um, yeah. uh, to, 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 for influence and to establish himself. Yes. Um, so could you tell a little bit of that story? And this is a time period where there was a lot of that going on. There was a lot of this exaggeration, Lobsam Rangpa, you've mentioned before. Um, I even think a bit of Car Carlos Castaneda has been accused of that. What is this? I have two questions then. What, what's this about Idris Shah? And, and secondly, what's this impulse that seems to be common to so many of these figures to invent their story yeah. and uh, invest themselves with this 
these great grand origin myths? Well, it's a great question. I, by the way, I don't know that Shaw himself lied about being uh, a teacher from the East, but he certainly lent that impression to J.G. Bennett. You know, it's been about 10 years. I don't revisit my own book. <clears throat> he did present himself as a guardian <clears throat> of the teachings. Uh, but whether he lied about actually being only from the, from the East, I don't know. But he left the impression, at least. And people uh, believed that of him when he introduced himself. Right. Are you looking for that reference? I could quote it to you if you like. Yeah, that's fine, because I don't, I don't recall that. Well, let me put it this way. Maybe this is a gentler way of putting it. I oh, yeah. think there's a great deal of very interesting insight that comes from Idris Shah. And I think Gurdjieff himself, I'm not interested in Ospensky. I never found him uh, a very attractive thinker. But Gurdjieff himself, when you read uh, Gurdjieff, is also intriguing. And, and he offers some really interesting insights. For example, the the very central idea of self-witnessing. Um, so I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to say that they were worthless or they were simply charlatans, but they were appealing to an extremely naive audience. Hmm? And an audience, moreover, that, that uh, was not interested in anything that came from their own culture, but rather the mystique of the East. Yeah. So they played into that mystique. And I think that was unfortunate, but it was the only way that they found that they could propagate their teachings. Mm. And again, I think that's a misfortune because I don't think the teachings need to be propagated. Shall I quote this part to you? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You said here that, here we go. Um, Shah contacted Bennett in 1962, presenting himself as having just arrived in England to seek out Gurdjieff's followers. There His mission. His mission, he claimed, was to transmit knowledge and methods that were needed to complete their teaching. Right. This, at least, was Bennett's understanding, as reported in his autobiography, Witness. In fact, right. Shah had been raised in Great Britain, was himself half Scottish, and had studied at Oxford. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So, you know, there's, of course, the, 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 the gurus themselves who, who may exaggerate or deceive or allow, allow mis, misconceptions to uh, remain, allow the implication to land. Uh, but then there are, of course, also the followers who, who gain from mythologizing their own teachers in, in various different ways. And it's not always entirely clear from where the impressions come, the imagination of the guru or the imagination of the follower, especially at that period. Well, I, I, I think they, they each collude in the other's mystification. Uh, my my uh, guru in Vancouver um, normally wore Western clothing. Uh, and and yet, when he went out to do presentations, he would put on Hindu clothing instead, and even a turban, which I never saw him wear. And at, the first time he did that, I said, "Why on earth are you putting a turban on?" And he said, "Well, because they won't listen to me unless you know I appear to be a swami." Yeah. He was a swami, but he had to appear to be a swami. Yeah. Uh, I've run into this myself as, as a representative of my teacher. Um, 
while he was still alive, people would try to, or viewed me as a kind of gatekeeper to the real guy, the real Mershid, you know, who was of course Turkish, uh, had to be, had to be, you know, of a different nationality, of an Eastern form, Arab or a Persian or a Turk, you know. Uh, and I was just a doormat, right? And nothing could be further from the truth. He and I were colleagues at that point. He would always send the people back to me. And yet, I'm hard to accept because I talk with a New York accent, you know, I've lived most of my life in the States. I am an American. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, it's only lately that we find, lately meaning the last maybe 20 years, that we find uh, Western gurus being accepted as authentic, as, as, as authentic as the Eastern teachers. Right. There are now American lamas. There are now American teachers of Theravada and have been for some time, but now they're fully accepted as transmitting the Dharma. And in Sufism, less the case. The real thing must be over there, must be in the Middle East. We were discussing the possibility of a second interview in which the second one we'd, we'd start really where, where I expect we'll leave off here shortly. And and talking the second one about, well, what is the Sufi path? How does one practice it? What are the seven, the seven stages that you outline here in the book, the seven stations of wisdom? And what does it mean to practice as a Sufi? And what is this way of blame? I think that would be something perhaps we could, we could immediately begin with in the second uh, episode, if you're willing to do one yeah. um, to record. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, I have two questions then before we, before we finish. The first is of, about Rumi. Of course, yes. when people think of Sufi, I think the two things that many people think, well, when I think of Sufi, I think, okay, mystical core of Islam, and then Rumi, <laughs> the so-called America's favorite poet. You described it as a Rumi craze, and you write that during the Rumi craze, the premises of Sufism were almost completely reversed in the interests of spiritual consumerism. Mm -hmm. In the process, the actual discipline of the Sufi path was utterly neglected, replaced by a more marketable sentimentality that fit new age expectations. One of those reversals you've, you've said here is, Rumi did not quest for religious rapture. Instead, he sought spiritual knowledge of a direct and sapiential quality that moved him to such rapture. Yes. So yes. I'm wondering if you might explain that distinction. There's a reversal there. There's another reversal earlier on where you say, Reading Chopra, you're talking about Deepak Chopra's uh, renderings of Rumi. Reading Chopra attentively, it would seem that the source of the divine can be found in transcendent intimacy and not the other way around. In other words, there's, an, there's a reversal that you're pointing to yeah. in the way Rumi is popularly understood compared yeah. to the Sufi, the Sufi uh, core, the Sufi tenets. Could or you say the, something a bit about that? Yeah, or the Sufi understanding of Rumi. Um, yeah. Sure. First of all, uh, it's, it's well known among Sufis that Rumi abhorred poetry. And yet we find him described as a Sufi poet in the West. He abhorred poetry. He, he was forced, he, he, he writes that he was forced to express himself in that way. Um, the, um, 
Mathnawi or Mesnevi, depends on your pronunciation, which is his six-volume work, uh, the most important work, uh, is, is called the second uh, Quran in Farsi. It's all commentary on Quran. So to approach Rumi without understanding the Quran seems like it's missing half the point. Yeah? Although one can enter the Quran, Quran is very difficult uh, scripture, I find. One can enter it um, in a better way through reading the, the Mathnawi or Mesnevi before going into the Quran. Uh, but they're linked, they're intimately linked. Um, clearly, Rumi was a practicing Muslim. He was a Qadi, he was a, a, a judge, right? He knew the Islamic uh, religious laws and, and uh, practiced as a judge. So to, to, to diminish all that and just approach him as this religionless mystic who transcends all that stuff, which he does, but in a different way than most people suspect, I think. Uh, to denude him of, of that context, I think is to do a great injustice to Rumi. Now, now, I'm not saying that popularizations of Rumi as promoted, for example, by Coleman Barks are not really good. I think Barks is excellent. His he, but he claims he's not just translating Rumi, he's interpreting Rumi. He's honest enough to do that. Some other people don't. Um, and I think his interpretations are quite valid and, and really uh, quite good and quite important. So we have to be careful not to discard everything about Rumi in the West being wrong, not discard, but to identify it as wrong. But we have to remember what his actual context is. Yeah. And to know a Rumi, you have to also study his context, his basis, hmm. his roots, what he claims to be his own roots. Yeah, so I think that's something perhaps to get into next time, um, where we can start uh, it, uh, right at that point, I think, about Sufism, about the way of, a way of blame, and outline exactly what, what is that, and what does it mean to practice in that, in that tradition. I'd also like to ask you next time about what you've described as the common language of Hellenism that uh, is shared by, as you put it, the mystics of the three monotheisms. Yes. So that's interesting, this Neoplatonic or Hermetic, <clears throat> some people say, language, this common, this common language. That's interesting. I think that would be interesting to discuss as well, this Hellenism as a core mystical language and what, what that means and how that's different from Indic or other yeah, ideas. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to get into that. In that case, Dr. Yanis Tasoulis, thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.